Welcome to the Humble Hoof Podcast. My name is Alicia Harlov. This is a podcast for both horse owners and hoof care professionals, offering discussions into various philosophies on the health of the hoof and soundness of your horse. Please check us out on Facebook or at thehumblehoof.com. Something I've been wanting to make an episode about was the importance of having a horse stand well for their hoof care appointments and ways that owners can help. I know that every time I go to a new horse especially, I never know if that'll be the day I get kicked or injured from a horse that's either too nervous or has some holes in their training or is in pain and just doesn't know how to let me know without acting out. And I'm the first person to admit I'm not a trainer. I have a Mustang that tends to err on the side of nervous, and I've done some positive reinforcement training with him, but with owners, I'll request they hire a trainer if the horse needs some help with holding up their feet. Kristen Thornberry is a hoof care provider in Arkansas, and when I heard she was also a trainer, I asked if she would share some insights on getting a horse to stand well and make appointments more productive and safe for us as their hoof care provider. So why don't we start with uh, you giving us a little background into who you are and how you got into training or how you learned more about your insights into training that you're going to give us today. Okay. Sounds good. Um, Well, I have a bachelor's degree in animal science from Cal Poly and a minor in equine science. And uh, while I was actually going to college, uh, I had this mare that had really awful feet and the environment uh, where I was living in California is quite rocky. And so she really needed some sort of protection full time. And this was like 15, 20 years ago. So like rehabilitative work barefoot seemed to be kind of in its infancy. Um, and the farrier that I had at the time said, Hey, you know, you're a poor college student. If you can't afford to keep your horse shod, you know, all around like this with corrective shoes every five weeks, like, would you be interested in riding along with me and learning how to do it? So, of course, I thought, well, you think I can actually do that? <laughs> I was like, you know, there weren't very many or as far as I knew, very many women farriers out there. And he's like, sure, you know, come on. It'd be great. I'm like, okay. So I started riding along with him when I was in college to learn how to shoe my own horse. And... Uh, when I graduated from college, he asked me if I wanted to ride along full time with him. And I was like, yeah, actually, I'd love to. I really enjoy this. You know, I get to work outside. I get to work with horses all day. Um, but what I've been doing before that uh, fell into the realm of training more so. Like, I learned to ride English. Um, I have a background in cutting horses as well. And I loved the problem solving nature of training. I actually ended up riding with him for a couple of years. And one of the clients that he had was wanting to go this barefoot route. And she actually bought Pete Ramey's DVD set. And so in California, at least where we lived on the central coast, it doesn't rain very often. So when it does, like we never worked. (laughs) We're like, oh no, there's water falling from the sky. We can't go to work. So on rainy days, uh, we would go to his place and his wife would make us grilled cheese sandwiches and we would watch Pete Ramey's um, Under the Horse DVDs and study them and then try to put into place what we learned from those DVDs. So that was my initial introduction to like barefoot trimming. And then I got married, had kids, moved to Arkansas, and I kind of just left that path of 
uh, traditional farrier work and started taking on um, problem horses for training. And like that's that's honestly my true passion. I love working with horses that are really misunderstood and having trouble existing within our world. But what I started to see was that a lot of the horses I got in for training had really awful feet. And I think sometimes they were so bad that the pain from their feet was causing their behavioral issues. So I started trimming those horses while they were with me. And then when they went home, the owners asked me if I could continue working on their feet. And that just kind of became a thing over time. And organically, I started doing more and more trimming and less and less training. And now I only trim. I don't have any time to train anymore. And sometimes it makes me a little bit sad, but it's, it seems like in the area I live in now in Northwest Arkansas, that is where the need lies for the horses. And I want to help horses in any way that I can. So right now that's taking care of their feet. No, I think that's great. And honestly, a lot of what you said kind of hits home for me because whenever I come to a horse and they're having trouble standing, my first assumption because of, you know, the field we're in is that they're in some sort of pain. Um, but mm-hmm. obviously that's not always the case. So, you know, before we start talking a little bit about making horses more willing partners in terms of our like hoof care relationship. Um, Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about, I know there's like a ton of theories out there on training, but can you talk a little bit about, you know, your ideas on the horse's mindset and where they're coming from when we interact with them? Yes, absolutely. So I really think that most horses only do things for two reasons. Number one is I think They do things because they think it's the right answer based on how they've been handled or previously trained. And the second one is that I think horses do things because it's what they think they need to to do to survive. And if you can put their behavior into those two categories, you really have no more problem horses. You just have horses that are misunderstood. And I think if we can come at behavior, any type of horse behavior, with empathy rather than frustration and anger, we're going to be able to get a lot more done with those equines that are having trouble behaviorally. I mean, horses don't even have a frontal lobe. You know, they can't, they can't plot against us. <laughs> you know, that's a human thought process. Those are human emotions and horses just don't have them. You know, they're very simple. They, they live in the moment. They're very mentally present, whereas humans are not. And I think because we are not, we miss a lot of the subtle ways that horses try to communicate with us. You know, they're not very verbal creatures. They communicate predominantly through body language and energy. So if we're not mentally present with them, we're going to miss a huge part of how they try to communicate with us. I feel like there's a lot of people who get really into a certain kind of method of training. Like I have a lot of owners who are very into positive reinforcement. I have a lot of owners who like really into like the pressure release um, kind of method. Uh So I don't, I didn't know if you had any thoughts on those or if you sort of utilize a blend of things or if you kind of veer towards one over the other. So basically for any, I don't follow necessarily a method. I follow a general set of training principles because I found like I have followed methods in the past, like a a huge variety of them. (laughs) And I would get to a point with every method 
where I would kind of run out of knowledge and tools with a specific horse. And I'd be like, okay, well, I don't know what to do now. You know, this horse doesn't fit the paradigm, you know, that I have in my head or, you know, I watch this video and it doesn't necessarily apply to what I'm seeing with a specific horse. And so it wasn't until I kind of left following methods behind and started following training principles that I started to stop running out of ways to approach different behavioral issues. I like to say, like, you cannot deal in absolutes with horses. You just can't. As soon as you think that something is absolutely true, another horse will come along and prove that it isn't and kind of have to scratch your head and reevaluate how you're approaching that horse and working with it. So I just treat each horse as an individual and apply the principles that I use and that allows me to problem solve based on what I'm seeing and experiencing with that particular horse. Uh, but yeah, every so-called method I've tried to follow has been very limiting at some point on my horsemanship journey. So like now I just, I just kind of wing it. It depends on what the horse is presenting to me on the day too. Like we may have gotten to a certain point the day before and I come out to work with the horse the next day and we have a completely different starting point. But if I was following a method that said, okay, well, you do this, and then you do this, and then you do this, I would be doing that horse a great disservice because what it needed in that moment on that day was not what I had necessarily watched in the video the night before, you know? So it wasn't applicable in that situation. So I would say the main thing is, like, live in the moment with your horses and be flexible. As soon as we start to think we know it all, you know, horses seem to like to humble us, at least they do to me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I guess you could say that negative reinforcement, positive reinforcement, those are two different theories of training. And I also like to say to people, you know, that are kind of stuck in one realm or the other, balance is key in all things. When I watch horses interact with each other too, I'm going to try to use how they kind of communicate with each other as a starting point to build our relationship and start communicating with each other. And I see horses when they're interacting with one another, they predominantly interact using negative reinforcement. And I, I hate the name negative reinforcement because it, it does create like a negative connotation, I think, in people's minds. Oh, well, that's negative. And it, no, it's more math related. All you're doing with negative reinforcement is you're taking something away when the horse finds the right answer versus positive reinforcement. It's not that it's necessarily positive, right? It's math where you're adding something. So when the horse finds the right answer with positive reinforcement, you're giving it something, you're rewarding it with something. And that's really the only difference. So it's, I think it's hard in people's minds to get away from those two terms. Like they almost attach those terms to an emotion. It's just adding or subtracting things while you're training. The one that has been a huge game changer for me was discovering cat H training. And I always forget what the letters stand for, <laughs> but it's basically negative reinforcement combined with staying under threshold. Cause that's one thing that I think people take too far with negative reinforcement. They will, when they are putting pressure on the horse, they are taking the horse over threshold. And it becomes, you know, somewhat unpleasant for the horse. So I think the staying under threshold is a better way to communicate, even though you're still adding pressure. 
and then taking away pressure. But you're not ever getting to a point where you're technically flooding them. So that's been the biggest game changer for me is the introduction of cat age into my training. And that makes a lot of sense. I mean, like I said, I... I'm really not in any way a trainer. I have a really sensitive Mustang and he, if he has too much pressure in any way, he just goes like catatonic. He shuts down and doesn't respond to anything. Okay. So he actually, and that's the only, that's what sort of got me a little bit into positive reinforcement because with him, he responds, I can kind of draw him out of his shell when he has that reward that's in front of him where he's like, you know, intrigued to try to figure that out and what, in what ways to get that. Um, yes. but again, even so, like, I, I still don't, I, I should, I guess, you know, work with training, but I still don't like actively train him or say that I, you know, know a ton about positive reinforcement or that I'm in any way a trainer because I, I, it's hard and, and Mustangs, oh my goodness, they, they are so cool, but they are also so difficult because, you know, they're so much more aware of us you know, in our energy and what we're doing physically when we're around them. Um, But actually, that's a great intro into one thing that I wanted to discuss, which was um, stress indicators. Yeah. So stress indicators, uh, some people call them calming signals. And the main one I want to discuss that I think will be helpful for horse owners and hoof care practitioners is one that horses will generally give as you approach them. And this is the most common one that I see. And it may start from like 30, 40 yards away, depending on the sensitivity of the horse and how comfortable or uncomfortable they are with being approached. But as you approach a horse, if they keep their feet still, but they turn their head about 90 degrees away from you while still looking at you out of the corner of their eye, that is a stress indicator that says, I am not comfortable with you approaching me, but I know the right answer is to stand still. So they don't actually leave, but mentally they are leaving. And it's, it's basically the first sign that they're just uncomfortable with you. And so usually what I do, if I see a horse giving me this type of stress indicator as I'm approaching it, is I will pause and then I will retreat until that horse brings its head back to where it was, where it's facing me with two eyes. And then I will stand where I am and wait for a sign of relaxation. And that's kind of just letting the horse know that, that, hey, I'm sorry you're uncomfortable with my approach. Like I see that you're uncomfortable with it. And I'm gonna retreat to let you know that I empathize with how you feel. And that has been, that alone has been a huge game changer with me, um, building a relationship like with new client horses that I'm going to go trim where maybe nobody's seen it before, or even if they've seen it, maybe they haven't said, Hey, I'll retreat until you feel better about this. And then I'll try again. And it means such a huge deal to those horses. And then when I'm waiting for a sign of relaxation, you have to be careful with what you end up viewing as a sign of relaxation. And it's kind of like, you have to view whole horse. Like some people be like, oh, that horse cocked its leg, he's relaxed, I can approach him. Not necessarily. You know, some horses, maybe their their lower lip starts to hang and they kind of close their eyes and they look like they're falling asleep. That may or may not be relaxation. 
So I want to see something really concrete, like, you know, lowering the head down to the ground or licking or chewing or yawning or something like that. Something where I'm like, okay, you're relaxed. I'll approach again. You know, and some horses, when you approach again, they'll give you that stress indicator. And I'm going to pause and back up and retreat and wait for a sign of relaxation until I go to approach that horse and they just keep their eyes on me with their head forward. And that takes as long as it takes, which unfortunately sometimes is a long time. Yeah. <laughs> but that's the first step, you know, that's, that's the first step to, to building that relationship that you want to be based on trust. Warwick Schiller, who is a trainer that I follow, and I'll probably bring up his name quite a bit, but he says that every, every horse or every equine has a worry cup. And every horse or equine's worry cup is a different size. You know, some horses, it may be the size of like a beer tankard. Like it's huge. Like it's a, it's a pint. And others, um, their worry cup may be the size of like a thimble. So basically, as horses start to get, or equines in general, start to get concerned about things, they'll start adding worry to that worry cup. And the big cups can hold a lot more worry before they tip over. And that's when a behavioral explosion occurs, you know, where a horse buck bolts, rears, kicks, something like that. But the one that's the size of a thimble tips over much more easily. So these horses that are really concerned about things we're asking them to do, like concern in general, usually the thing that tips them over the edge is not the thing they're afraid of. It's just the thing that tipped over their worry cup. And there's a multitude of other things that filled that cup to get it to that level, to get it to where an explosion was going to occur. So basically what I do in a nutshell is I use equine behavior modification therapy, which is a fancy word for teaching a horse coping skills. And I teach the horse by using different modes of communication. I could use negative reinforcement, positive reinforcement, um, cat H training, and some things I don't even know what to call them these days. But I teach the horse these coping skills that they learn to dump out this worry as we go along so that they never get to a point where their worry cup is filled all the way to the top and tips over causing a behavioral explosion. And that leads me into one other thing where uh, there's this um, book called Outliers by uh, Malcolm Gladwell. And it's, this actually has nothing to do with horses, but everything to do with horses. <laughs> so um, basically says that there are like six or seven things that always occur before any major disaster. And they all occur in a row. Like before every major plane crash, there's always six things in a row that go wrong. Like it's this number, six or seven things, always. So normally with horses, before there's an explosion, there are six or seven, a minimum of six or seven things that have filled that worry cup, right? And if we don't empty them out along the way, eventually that worry cup gets filled and it tips over and that explosion occurs. So if you're talking about these stress indicators, that's usually number one, right? That may be the first thing that starts to fill that horse's worry cup. And depending on how sensitive the horse is and how small their worry cup is, it might not take very many more things, you know, like usually a minimum of six or seven before that worry cup gets filled and tips over, you know. So if you ignore that very first thing when that horse gives you that stress indicator, that's number one. So 
it may seem kind of like a small, tiny, insignificant thing, but to the forest, I think it means a great deal. And if you keep building on top of that, you know, maybe by the time you go to pick up the first foot, that horse is really anxious and on the verge of tipping that cup over. I, I try to tell people, always look for that. How is the horse responding when you approach them? Most people, I don't think, take into consideration how the horse is feeling until the horse has decided to explode <laughs> or has decided to leave. And they go, uh-oh, he's upset about something. You know, when really, it usually that anxiety builds long before that explosion occurs. I also talked to Ruth DeGenero, a healthcare provider in Washington State. Well, yeah, it's basically their responsibility to do the, put in the time training them and exposing them to new people in situations handling their feet. I mean, if they have a husband or a friend or anybody else that can come around, pick up feet and clean them out, um, besides themselves, a lot of horses just get, but I call cloistered in. They get used to their one caregiver. And when the farrier shows up, it's like, it just goes out the window because the farrier's the stranger. Horses don't want to trust strangers. And donkeys are even worse about that. Donkeys really, donkeys and mules, they really don't want to trust strangers if they're in a care situation where they don't get a lot of exposure to different people. So get a daily hoof cleaning routine. If you're picking up that animal's feet every day and have a spot where you do it, where you expect your farrier to work, um, because location means everything to horses too, location. So if you're doing it in the same spot every day and then the farrier shows up, then the farrier is the new thing and they can handle one new thing, but they can't often handle a whole bunch of new things at once. In the animal behavior world, they call it trigger stacking. We start adding new things, new things, new things, and then they blow their top. Jeff Noonan is a farrier in the UK, which is a bit of a different experience than in the States. He talked with me about the UK standards a bit. If you were to walk into a bar and saw a hell's angel sat down, you wouldn't want to go up to him and, and try and take your socks and shoes off. You think it's, it's stupid. But that's <laughs> what we've been asked to do. Right. <laughs> in effect, the animals that, that aren't trained. <laughs> right. You know, they've got that that flight element with them. And, you know, if anyone's seen a horse just suddenly lose it or startle, you know, it's they're, they're just on that brink of, you know, doing themselves damage, you damage, wrecking a car that's parked there, wrecking the, uh, and, and knocking the owners, and, you know, sideways. You know, it's, it is a very, very risky job. But I, I think that it is worth mentioning that as a UK-based farrier, that we have our registration council. Uh, you know, it's, it's a regulated industry here in the UK. And we, we get our guide to professional conduct that we adhere to. Horses and behavior is of such importance that it, it actually has a separate contents in the listing. Difficult horses. Farriers are advised not to commence or continue working with an animal if it is felt that the present uh, temperament of the horse or the conditions the horse is kept in are unfavorable to a successful outcome and or that the health and safety of the farrier or others, including the horse, may be compromised by proceeding. The farrier may request the horse owner or keeper to seek assistance from a veterinary surgeon. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's pretty clear. Just take one big step back. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. So thinking about that, what are some 
issues that you see that, you know, obviously if a horse isn't plotting to be difficult for, you know, our appointments, what are some issues that you see that make horses not stand well when we're working on them? Let's yeah. dig into um, anxiety. Yeah. <laughs> there were four types for owner and horse anxiety, right? Sometimes the horse is anxious. Sometimes the owner is anxious. Sometimes the horse is making the owner anxious and sometimes the owner is making the horse anxious. Yeah. <laughs> so... Okay, well, the first one is probably one of the most common ones that I see across the board, whether an owner is handling their horse for their hoof care practitioner or whether they're trying to do any type of training with their horse. And that is um, holding tight under the chin. Some owners will just stand there and their horse is standing completely still and they'll be holding like, like if it was a rope halter, they'd be holding almost like the knot of the rope halter and like pulling down on it and holding it tight while their horse is standing still. This doesn't actually make the horse stand still. <laughs> it actually has the complete opposite effect. It, it's like, um, I tell a couple different stories about this to try to help it make sense to the owner. So like if, if you were standing still and I put my hand on your shoulder and I kind of started just pulling or shaking on your shoulder and said, stand still. You know, and you kind of looked at me like I was crazy and said, no, stand still. And I'm shaking of you and pulling on your shoulder. Right. And so eventually you're probably going to move <laughs> because you are standing still. And I keep pulling on you and shaking you and telling you to stand still, even though you already are, you know, to a human, that would be quite maddening. So to a horse that doesn't even speak our language, it's even more confusing and frustrating for them. And the other story I usually tell is I actually saw this on Facebook a couple of years ago where there was, it was like a picture of this little boy in a classroom with his teacher. And there was a big analog clock on the wall. And it, I don't remember what, exactly what time it said, but we'll just say it said 1230. So the teacher asked the little boy, he, she says, you know, what time is it? He looks up at the clock and says, it's 1230. And the teacher says, what time is it? And the little boy looks up the clock and says, it's 1230. And the teacher says, no, what time is it? And the boy looks up at the clock and says, 1230. And the teacher says, no, what time is it? And the little boy looks up at the clock and says, 1245. So if we apply that story to training horses where the owner's holding under the chin while the horse is standing still, it's like asking the horse the same question over and over and over again. And at some point, he's going to think to himself, Standing still must not be the right answer. There is pressure here. No matter what I do, standing still, there's pressure here. So he's going to try to find what the correct answer might be. And most likely he's going to move his feet to try to find that answer. So when owners are holding under the chin tight and putting pressure on their horse when they're doing the right thing, they're actually making the right thing hard. And we want to make the right thing easy. We want to make standing still a place of no pressure so that the horse seeks that place out. And this used to really frustrate me because, right, I'm showing up to trim and I'm not showing up to train. And I feel like when you're a horse owner, sometimes there's nothing worse than receiving unasked for advice. So I don't, I don't like to say too much unless I'm asked or unless the situation is just evolving and becoming somewhat dangerous. But then the other day, well, a couple, I guess a couple months ago now, 
I was going through this, talking to this owner about holding under the chin and how it was making the situation worse. And she actually said it a few times. She said, I'm just trying to keep you safe. And I kept, you know, talk, talking and tried to explain myself. And she kept saying, I'm, I know, but I'm just trying to keep you safe. And then I realized that I should not be getting frustrated with the owners that are doing this to their horses because it's actually coming from a place of concern for them. And I was like, oh, you were worried that your horse is going to hurt me. You know, thank you so much for being concerned for my safety. But then I was like, but let's do it this way. <laughs> let's turn it around and do it this way. This is, this is especially true for donkeys and mules. This is one of the most maddening things. And I think especially for donkeys because they're, you know, usually they're quite small. And a lot of people um, try to manhandle them so that uh, hoof care providers can trim their feet. Warwick Schiller, he has said in the past that you have to train a donkey or a mule the way you should train a horse. So when I go over this, don't hold under the chin with equine owners, the ones that have donkeys, oh my goodness, it makes sense like immediately. And a donkey that was wiggly and pulling its feet away or trying to run off, as soon as you stop holding under the chin and you give it the option to either stand still or leave, almost every time they'll, they'll just choose to stand still and relax. Whereas with a horse, you might have to um, give them the option to stand still or leave on a loose lead. And they may leave a few times and you may have to draw them to a stop before they can figure out what you're asking them to do but yeah donkeys and mules man they they learn so fast and they really do not appreciate being held under the chin yeah <laughs> this would probably be more useful this next part for hoof care providers and that's going over a form of anxiety for the horse destination addiction and separation anxiety which as i'm talking i may just start to call da and sa yeah. <laughs> it's a little bit easier than uh, regurgitating those mouthful of words. But basically, for horses, destination addiction is just the idea that the horse believes that somewhere else is better than where he is. So as a hoof care provider, right, if, if there's a horse that doesn't want to be where he is and is only thinking about where he wants to be, he's probably not going to stand very well or even be quite dangerous to trim his feet. So if I think that that is the underlying issue, then I will just try to accommodate the horse while I am there. Like ideally, you know, you can go over it with the owner and they work on the issue. But if you're there in the moment, you know, and you're there to trim and this horse is really upset because he's in a place he doesn't really want to be, I just accommodate the horse. So if it's separation anxiety and the horse wants to be with a buddy, I will either bring the buddy with that horse to the place where we're going to trim or I will take my stuff out, you know, into the pasture or wherever it is to trim that horse next to his friend. Because there's no point fighting that. You know, it's just the horse is going to have a bad experience. I'm going to have a bad experience. The owner is going to be anxious because their horse isn't behaving well. So we're not letting the horse win. We're just working within the confines of what that horse is capable of in that moment. And it was probably the number one issue I actually used to see when I had horses in for training was that they were drawn to some place or something, you know, like maybe 
if somebody's hauled in, like their horse may be drawn to wherever their trailer is. You know, that's where the horse wants to be. Most of the time it has to do with where their buddies are. You know, they're, they're prey animals, they're herd animals, and they feel safest when they're with their buddies. It's just the way it is. You know, unless you've built a relationship with that animal and they feel as comfortable with you as they do with their herd. You know, that's the ideal situation. That's when it doesn't matter where you take the horse to trim their feet. If they trust you and have a relationship with you, they won't have any problem standing, you know. But I'd say, gosh, probably close to 75% of horses that I work on have some type of destination addiction or separation anxiety. And it's much easier for me to kind of work in an environment where they are comfortable even if that means working somewhere where I'm not as comfortable. I'd much prefer that and keep everybody safe. And then if we're moving on to owner anxiety, let's talk about owner anxiety. (laughs) Cause I feel like that's a big one. And like, I've been there, Right. (laughs) you know, I still get anxious about certain things and used to get anxious about a lot of things. So I think maybe owners that have had, maybe they've had bad experiences with previous farriers they used, you know, maybe their horse didn't behave well for the previous farrier and they kind of have that thought in their head, you know, or that concern like, oh my gosh, you know, how's it going to go this time? (laughs) You know, I don't want anybody to get hurt. I don't want anybody to get upset. And it's funny too, because, you know, sometimes the horse may have only acted up one time, right? But that one time is enough to get it ingrained in the owner's head that it's going to happen again. You know, they have this, this idea and this picture in their mind of how it's going to go again, even though it only ever happened once. And to me, that's, that's really unfair to the horse, right? If it's happened once, there's no pattern there, right? It could have been a freak accident. Those do occur, even though everything I've said so far seems to be like it, like freak accidents don't occur very often. And, and they don't, but they can, right? So if it's been one time and there was one bad experience, I try to tell owners, it, there's nothing that tells us it's going to happen again, okay? And it's really important to try to remove that thought from their heads and to do something as simple as work on their breathing if they're feeling really anxious about how the appointment's going to go. I just tell them, breathe in for six, hold for six, and breathe out for six right? And it sounds so simple. But if you can do that for a few times, you know, a few repetitions of that, it will actually reset your central nervous system. And it will physically and mentally calm you down. So that's just one little thing they can do if they're feeling really anxious. So if there's a pattern, right? If there's a pattern of behavior, and it's happened over and over again, multiple times, that is something that is worthy of anxiety. Right. I mean, then something needs to change. Usually it's that these horses, they're just lacking in these coping skills. They, they don't understand what they're being asked to do, or they're not okay about what they're being asked to do. And they're going to express behaviors that they think they need to express in order to survive. I actually recommend people check out Jane Pike on Facebook. She works specifically with horse owners and their anxiety she has a program called confident rider and she has helped gosh tons of people learn to interact with their horses without being anxious and because i am not that is not my specialty right i i deal with the horse 
I work with, of course, is anxiety, but people are a whole nother ball game. So I usually refer them to other experts that know, you know, a thousand times more than I do on the subject. <laughs> but sometimes, you know, if the horse, if I feel like the horse is feeding off the owner's anxiety, sometimes I might just say, look, just, you know, let's just drop the line, let the horse chill out, let the horse eat some grass, let's just chat, you know, chat about your day. And if we can do something that's not solely focused on the horse for a few minutes, sometimes that dramatically helps lower their level of anxiety. Because I think it also gives them time to see that their horse can just stand there, relax, you know. And we've also given the horse a few moments to relax. And things normally go so much better after that. Basically, like, as I've been on my own horsemanship journey, I used to focus predominantly, right, following other people's methods, trying to gain as much knowledge on horsemanship and training as I possibly could. And I've kind of switched gears these days. And I've started working on myself a lot more. Because I was noticing when I was working on my horsemanship and trying to problem solve for specific horses, you know, that one horse would get better if I improved my knowledge while I was working with that horse. But when I started working on myself, you know, and on a journey of more self-discovery and self-improvement, every single horse I was started working with improved. I've switched gears and I, I still listen to, you know, equine podcasts on training and hoof care and all of that, but I've started leaning much more toward listening to people like Brene Brown. She has a podcast called Unlocking Us and working on myself. And I found that every single horse I've come in contact with has improved since I started doing that. And that's, it's a hard pill to swallow, you know, that we may need to change some fundamental things about who we are to see improvements in our horses. And that's a tough conversation to have and one I don't normally actually have with clients. <laughs> but it it's true, you know, and the horses will tell you it's true. Yeah, even as hoof care providers, you know, that's something that could really be helpful because how easy is it for us to think like, oh my goodness, I have to get through X amount of horses today and I need to see them, you know, before this time and, you know, start to just rush and get into a um, mindset of like, you know, more about time than about the actual horse. And I find myself, you know, constantly reminding myself like, okay, focus on this horse. It's about this horse right now. And, you know, making them comfortable, making their feet comfortable and not, you know, everything gets worse if we're just like, okay, I need to rush. I need to get to my next appointment, you know? Exactly. It's, you know, horses, they don't operate on a schedule like we do at all. The opposite, really. (laughs) You know, I feel like a lot of people that are anxious, we're we're technically living in the future. You know, we're we're thinking about what may happen in the future, what we need to do in the future. And horses don't think like that. They live in the moment. You know, they're always mentally present in what's going on right now. And humans are not. And I think we would be a lot happier if we did live in the moment with the horse a lot more. Um, and you actually, that was perfect. You led me into the next topic I wanted to discuss, which I call hurry up and wait. Oh, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> and it's basically, you know, I try to tell, well, anybody that has anything to do with horses, you know, learn to have patience and wait for horses in every way possible. Like I said, horses don't have schedules to keep like we do. 
you know, they're not thinking about, oh, you know, I have 30 minutes to spend on this horse and then, you know, I have to get in my car and I have to drive to my next appointment. It's going to take me this long to get here. You know, and they have so many horses. And if I don't finish, you know, those horses by this time, I'm not going to get home till seven, eight o'clock at night. Right. Like the horse has none of those thoughts in its head. And it's actually the, I guess the old adage here would make sense too like slow is smooth and smooth is fast. <laughs> it's so true for horses. And, and it's funny too, like when I'm waiting for a horse to let down, like that's part of what I do, like how I use cat H when I'm trimming feet, I'm basically doing something, then retreating and waiting for relaxation, doing something, retreating, waiting for relaxation. So how I apply that to working on their feet is, you know, once I know they're okay with me approaching them, when I pick up a foot, no matter what I do to it, even if I just pick it up and pick out the foot or even just pick it up and look at it, when I put that foot down, I'll try to retreat and like physically retreat, like walk a few steps away and wait for that horse to give me a sign of relaxation before I go try to do anything else. And sometimes you have to wait a while <laughs> for that relaxation. And I mean, with horses that I know really well, I won't take all this extra time. Like this is more for horses that are showing some type of concern where I'm like, Ooh, do I really want to put, pick up that foot and stand underneath this horse and risk my own personal safety when I'm already getting vibes that they're not okay with just me being here. And so a few times when I've retreated and I'm waiting for that sign of relaxation, I've actually timed it to see how long it takes. And oh my gosh, like one or two minutes feels like an eternity yeah. <laughs> to stand there and do nothing. So I get it for people where they're like, oh my gosh, I have 30 minutes to do this. But if you take those two minutes to wait for that letdown, it means such a huge deal to the horse that you may be done in the next 15, you know, and then you're actually 10, 15 minutes ahead right. of where you were, you were worried previously that you wouldn't be, you know? Um, so I feel like it's kind of counterintuitive to us, but that's the biggest thing that I do with difficult horses I come across when I'm trimming is if I can just wait on them, wait for them to find that relaxation. Um, cause that's another hard thing for people too, I think is that, you know, with a lot of these methods and stuff that we follow, we're constantly doing something like we, we as humans, we like to do something. We like to make things happen. And when we're working with horses and we're trying to gain their trust and help them be relaxed around us, we actually have to wait for things to happen, which is a challenge. It was so challenging for me. Like I'm naturally a very impatient um, person that used to get angry very easily. So working with horses has completely changed how I operate in all areas of my life. It has helped me personally just in so many ways. But that was probably the most difficult one for me, waiting for relaxation, waiting for things to happen, not making things happen when I was training. And the horses appreciate that change in distinction so much. And that alone can just create a very nice foundation of trust before you go to handle their feet. Oh, this human will wait for me. You know, it's, yeah. it's a huge deal for them. Not so huge for us, but for them, it really is. Yeah, I definitely agree. I'm just thinking about with my own Mustang, how 
once I just kind of like got rid of all time constraints and just worked with him within his own sort of like parameters and got him really comfortable, how he became more comfortable with a lot of things. Cause he, he knew like I wasn't going to be upset or, or, you know, angry if, <laughs> you know, with him during yeah. the process. So I didn't know if you also had some like practical things for owners to work on so that the appointment goes smoother. So it's not just, you know, yes. us trying to, to gauge those stress yes. indicators and wait for relaxation, but also like how to make sure that the owner knows how to get that horse relaxed before we. And that is the hardest part. This is going to be probably the hardest part of our discussion <laughs> yeah. because well, like when I listen to training podcasts, like Warwick Schiller has a podcast now and he's been interviewing all these amazing trainers from all over the world you know, and at the end, he asked them for any advice they'd give to horse owners or aspiring trainers. And the number one thing that everyone has said so far is you have to put in the time, basically. <laughs> There's no substitute for spending time with your horse. There really are no shortcuts. Like, I can do certain things to micromanage my way through a trim, but it's not getting me anywhere. You know, it's the only thing it's doing is helping me safely get through that moment. But I'm not actually training the horse to do anything. So the horse training, you know, it's it's kind of on the owner. And I hate that. <laughs> I, You know, because people take that differently. You know, some people will get really upset when you broach that subject. You know, maybe they're super busy in their lives and they just don't have the ability to spend a whole lot of time with their horses at that moment and it is what it is but it's also creating a dangerous situation for their hoof care provider right like there aren't too many professions where like you could die right right nobody likes to go there <laughs> yeah but it's a dangerous profession i mean even if it's something as simple as you know a, a horse is kicking at a fly while you're trimming its front feet like that could be the end, you know, it could get kicked by a hind foot and in the head and that's it. Um, and that's just a basic thing, you know, like flies that it doesn't even have anything to do with training. So that's the hard thing is that if the owners aren't preparing their horses to have their feet done, it's dangerous to our livelihood and our lives. So it is a big deal and we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings by saying, hey, you know, <laughs> You need to work with your horse, but that's usually what it comes down to, or they need to get help from a trainer, you know, somebody that they admire and trust to help them with their horse. You know, I can discuss how I go about teaching a horse to stand still. Yeah, And that'd be great. unfortunately it's not a quick fix and it's a process. There's not one thing like, you know, a lot of people will talk about, you know, we'll just put a rope around his leg, you know, and teach him to pick up his feet. I wish it were that simple, you know, because like I could do that in a day, <laughs> right? I'd be like, oh, that's simple. We'll just put this rope around this horse's foot. And when he picks up his foot, we'll release the rope. There's a lot more to it than that. I just, you know, I wish that was the only exercise you needed to do. So basically the way I teach a horse to stand still is that I don't focus on it standing still at all. I work on its foundation of training. When a horse learns to stand still for the farrier, basically it's ground time. So ground tying, the way I do things, is actually a byproduct of all the groundwork exercises I do combined. There's two types of exercises that you can do with horses. There are sensitizing exercises. Well, this is in the realm of negative reinforcement, right? There's other kinds beyond this. But 
this is the way I do things. I predominantly do things using negative reinforcement paired with Cat H. And for certain specific types of behavior, I'll combine that with positive reinforcement as well. But if I'm using mostly negative reinforcement in Cat H, I'm going to do sensitizing and desensitizing exercises. So a sensitizing exercise is where you're asking the horse to move its feet, right? You give a cue, if the horse doesn't move its feet, you normally use escalating pressure until it does. And a desensitizing exercise is the opposite. You're going to apply pressure, but expect the horse to stand still, right? You've applied pressure without giving a cue, so the answer to that is the horse standing still. So I will do various exercises in the round pen, like most people have seen, hooking on some or join up or something like that in the round pen. They're all different but similar. So every time I ask a horse to do something, a sensitizing exercise or desensitizing exercise, after I've asked for one repetition, I will wait for that horse to find relaxation before asking it to do anything else. So as you go through each groundwork exercise, the horse is learning that there will be a place in between repetitions where it can relax and stand still and do nothing and find relaxation. So that standing still portion of the groundwork exercises actually teaches the horse to ground tie, which without actually working on ground tying. So that's kind of a lot of work, isn't it? <laughs> Unfortunately, but, you know, it's the foundation for everything. I could try to tell people, you know, it's not just standing for the farrier. It's the beginning of trailer loading. It's the beginning of your steering under saddle. It's the beginning of everything, all those groundwork exercises. It's comparable to, you know, building the foundation of a house before you start the framing. Like if you build a poor foundation, you know, your framework's just going to fall to pieces as you keep building upon it. It's the same thing with any type of training. If your foundation of training is not solid, you know, nothing you try to build on top of it is going to work well, including standing for the farrier. So really, you know, if they can work on those basics, work on that foundation, all of a sudden their horse will just stand for the farrier without even working on it. I kind of have a training example of this. One of the last horses I had for training, she had a trailer loading issue. And the owner, like I said, you know, we went through the things that that she was hoping her horse could do before it came home. And the one at the top of the list was be able to load in the trailer. <laughs> so I had the horse, I think for, I don't know, six or eight weeks. And I actually didn't work on trailer loading until two days before the horse went to go home. And most people be like, oh my gosh, that was the number one thing you want. You know, she wanted that horse to be able to do and you didn't work on it until two days before it was supposed to go home. And in actuality, I had worked on trailer loading for the last, you know, six to eight weeks. I just hadn't done it with a trailer. So when I asked that horse to get into the trailer after those six or eight weeks, she just loaded right on because the foundation of what I had built before I'd asked her to get on the trailer again was so solid that it was just a very small step asking her to do something which previously you know, it made the horse uncomfortable. It wasn't a huge leap to get there. It's just like, oh, well, I can already do all these things. And now you would like to get in there. Okay, I can do that. It's the same thing with standing for the farrier. The exact same thing. If the foundation is solid, you actually don't have to work on it. Yeah. But, you know, the process you have to go through to get there. <laughs> right. uh, there's a lot of time and repetition 
involved in that. Yeah. And unfortunately, there's not much that, that the hoof care provider can do in that situation. It is up to the owner, yeah. you know, to either do it themselves or to ask a trainer to help them. My friend Beth Lewis, a farrier in New Hampshire, has been injured by a horse in the past to the point of needing surgery and putting her out of work. She shared with me some of her insights into the importance of having a safe horse to work on. I'm on my second ACL replacement. I had my first one done six years ago, um, and that was due to two back-to-back injuries resulting from horses not standing well. And at the time, I wasn't vocal in my request to owners or people holding horses to say, hey, can we do something to support your horse so he doesn't act this way? Uh, One horse just dropped his leg and fell down on me. And then the other horse, six weeks later after I recovered from severely sprained knee, uh, I had its foot forward on my stand and it pawed because it was anxious that it was in the barn alone. So those two things kind of opened up my eyes that I needed to start paying attention to what horses had to say, that they were uncomfortable, that they were in pain, that something wasn't right in their life to be able to do the task at hand. And I hear a lot of clients saying, well, I don't want to correct or support my horse because I don't want you to get hurt. And when I hear those things, I stop people and say, if you don't support your horse, then I am going to get hurt and I have been hurt. So after the past six years, um, I've really focused on stopping releasing my pressure because to some horses, when you pick up a foot, you're taking away part of their ability to run away. So they feel trapped. Then sometimes they're in a barn, sometimes they're on cross ties, sometimes they have a chain over their nose or whatever means that the owner is familiar with to attempt to make their horse stand still. And sometimes these are big animals or even the small mini ones. I've had them rear up on me and come down on my back and drive me into the ground. I had one lady who who stood over me and said, oh, look at that, you're giving him a piggyback ride. And I didn't, right, and I, I, I felt bad for that horse in that moment because she didn't recognize the situation and the horse's behavior that he was saying, I don't like being in this spot, in this place right now. So when I hear uh, an owner saying, I don't know what to do, or my favorite is, he's never done this when I pick his feet. That's when I say, okay, we need to stop and go back to square one. Um, And sometimes I have uh, owners go underneath their horse and pick their feet out. And then I say, that's great. Now, can you hold that foot up? for two to three minutes and they go well I don't do that and I said but this is what I need you to do with your horse so there's many different avenues of supporting these horses when they're using their best communication skills to us so when I put an owner and say go ahead and pick their feet I watch the horse's body language I watch their ears their face their whole are they tense are they relaxed and what the owner's position is If they're squatting now with their arms out in front, like they're going to attack the leg, they're nervous to get in there. That horse is going to go, why are you acting like a predator to me and not want to stand? So all these things I look at at one time and say, okay, let's try something different. But on the flip side of this, I'm not a trainer. I'm a farrier. And my job is to pick the foot up and do my job and not have to worry about training because I don't focus on training. I have to focus and develop my skill sets that work for my practice and training isn't one of those things. But I give out pointers and tools and then when I come back, if I feel as though the owner that this is outside of their scope, that's when I say, okay, we need somebody here to help teach you to support your horse to keep all three of us safe. 
So that's kind of my goals when I work on a horse. I will say that sometimes in the moment, I I shy away from telling owners how difficult it is trimming their horse, which I need to be more vocal about, I know, and more assertive about. But it's tempting to just kind of shrug it off in the moment or make it seem like it's not as hard as it is because I don't think owners realize when we have tools in our hands and we're trying to hold this leg on a, you know, thousand pound animal that's much stronger than we are. Um, even if we're making it look easy, like how hard it can be on like every muscle in our body to try to get through a foot on a difficult horse. And, you know, as you were saying, the horses that, you know, to go along with what you're saying, the horses that I find that are the most easy to work on have Mm -hmm. been ones where the owners are like with their horse and, you know, spending time with their horse and doing things with their horse, you know? Um, so, you know, those horses are used to being with people and used to, you know, being a partner in that, you know, human horse relationship and, you know, having them stand for the farrier is not anything crazy to them because they're already doing stuff with their horse. Um, exactly. Like, yeah, it doesn't, have to be any of these things that I said like we're getting technical you know like this is like a step-by-step thing you can kind of do you know to make it better but then there's something that like work Schiller likes to call 10 year old girl training (laughs) and it's what I think you just described like you can just be a good person who likes horses and your horses will stand well for the farrier (laughs) (laughs) you know (laughs) there's this whole other category yeah you know, people that maybe, maybe they, they don't put in as much time and effort like into the training as I just previously discussed and they just get along well with their horses, you know, and they enjoy their horses and they spend time with them, you know, and their horses are happy and it can totally go that way. You know, yeah. <laughs> like, like when you watch children with their horses, you know, they don't necessarily know what they're doing or know how to train, but they're enjoying what they're doing. They enjoy their horse. They spend lots of time with it and their horses are great. I'm just one person and it's just my, my experiences, you know, that's all that I'm, that I wanted to share with everybody. So there's probably like a thousand other ways to do these things. And, you know, probably even quite a few that are much better way to do these things, which I hope I get to find out on my own horsemanship journey. Yeah. It's just, it's just one perspective. It's just one way. Yeah. So but I think, like you said, it comes down to, like, they spend time with their horses, even if they're not, you know, technically training on them all the time. They're spending time with them. They know their horses. Their horses interact with people a lot. They trust people. And it makes the job so much easier because, yeah, like you said, like, the job is hard enough, right, when they're good. Right. And <laughs> the I, job is hard enough. <laughs> and I will say, too, like, I can absolutely, and I'm sure that other farriers and trimmers will, you know, resonate with this, but I can absolutely adore an owner and really love a horse, but if they're difficult to stand when I'm working on their feet, I usually dread going to that appointment. And it's it's just because I know I'm going to be sore and tired and I have to like mentally prepare and, and you know, we have some days we have really long days where we're already really tired. So anything that I know I sound like I'm pleading with owners, which I kind of am, but you know, anything owners can do to help make their horse stand really comfortably, for their appointments is so much, you know, it's just, it takes so much off our plate as professionals. 
it's huge. It is so appreciated, you know? And like, I try to tell owners too, like, I never expect perfection, right? I, I do have a three strikes rule where if after three appointments, the horse has not improved, <laughs> it can be a minuscule amount of improvement. It could be like 1% improvement, <laughs> you know? But yeah, if the horse hasn't made any improvements after three appointments, I'm probably not going to keep them as a client. It's just, it's just not worth like, you know, and there's varying degrees of, of things that need improving, but you know, if it's something that is in the realm of dangerous, it just gets to the point where it's not worth it. You know, it's not worth whatever we charge for a trim, you know, it's, yeah. you know, to get injured where maybe we can't go to work for a while or, you know, worst case scenario ever again. And like, what about our families and what about the other clients that we have on our books and their horses? The consequences of them not standing well can be quite significant. And you do want to get that point across to horse owners. Yeah. So it's a tough, you know, it's a tough line to walk, I find at least. <laughs> right, absolutely. Lachlan or Lockie Phillips, a hoof care provider in Spain, offered to chat with me as well about training and trimming horses. So, yeah, like I got a little bit of a reputation pretty quickly to trim horses that had so-called behavioral problems because I'm not only a barefoot provider, I'm a trainer as well. And I found myself really quickly kind of doing the same job for the same income and it was taking me twice as long. And when I had horses starting to like squeeze me up against stable walls and pin me against walls and, you know, snatch dangerous tools out of my hand I just started to think this is kind of inappropriate because I can't do my best work on a horse that's not prepared for that job if that makes sense or prepared for that life skill I try to call it a life skill people are kind of getting a two for one because um you know I'm a trainer and a trimmer and then I just started saying to people look if your horse sort of um, can't really hold the foot up for about two minutes if they can't really give the foot more or less first time I need to start actually charging for my training and yeah I lost some clients but I also gained some and um, I'm able to do better work that I feel better about because on a horse that can't stand or behave the quality of my trim automatically goes down and I'm not the type of person that will force a horse to uh, submit to a procedure. They need to cooperate or not cooperate. Um, and it's not my job as a trimmer to do that, unless you wanted to pay me for that service as well. Right, yeah. <laughs> I guess. My friend Casey Sexton is a farrier in North Georgia. And when I was talking with her, she stressed the importance of having a horse stand well at appointments. When a horse doesn't stand well, not only is it physically dangerous for us as the hoof care professionals, it robs us of our ability to give the horse the best trim that we could give and forces us to leave behind work that we aren't proud of. And nobody wins in that scenario. Well, I think we covered a lot of topics about why horses might not stand well behaviorally, but obviously there are times when a horse doesn't stand well, not because they, you know, don't have the right training, but because they're in a lot of pain. Yes. Um, so you've read my mind. <laughs> <laughs> that was where I was planning on heading next. 
is that you have to rule out pain. <laughs> right. Right. I kind of go through a process trying to figure out why a horse stand well. And I don't, I mean, I think because I've done a lot of training, usually the first thing I try to rule out is behavior. But, you know, certain things are more obvious than others. Sometimes it's very obvious that the horse is in pain and sometimes it is not. But if it is pain, you can never train out of pain. There's no point in even trying. So I think that has to be the first thing that people get in their heads. That If it's pain, the behavior is what it is. And you try to accommodate the horse in whatever way possible. So I think probably types of physical pain that are most obvious to me in horses are horses that um, are laminitic or navicular. You know, with laminitis, obviously, like the growth rings and the lamellar wedge, um, hoof wall separation, bulging sole. Uh, sometimes you can just see it before you even pick up the hoof, right? When they're in that rock back stance, that founder stance. Navicular horses, you know, I, I see that they're usually quite short strided. They may have a toe first landing, a head bob on a circle, varying degrees of lameness when moving. A huge one where, where I am, this is probably the main hoof distortion that I fight are contracted heels and deep central sulcus infections. Yeah. That is huge out here in Arkansas. Like I think we have such a wet environment and most of the horses out here are really deficient in copper and zinc and some have a lot of iron, maybe even iron overload. And it just seems to be like a perfect recipe for those deep infections. And I've even had horses been wrongly diagnosed with navicular that just had deep central sulcus infections. So that is a huge deal. Um, thin soles as well. When I see that a horse is in pain or kind of ruled out behavior and that the only thing we're left with is pain, I'll do whatever I can to make the horse comfortable while I'm there. Carry some different types of pads with me. I have just regular knee pads from like a Home Do-It store like Home Depot that you would kneel on if you were doing tile. That brings horses a lot of comfort if you can place it under a specific foot that is sore so you can trim the foot next to it that can give them some temporary comfort i also carry boots with me that i can put on the supporting feet while i'm trimming the fourth and i leave i leave all uh like any type of pain medication up to owners i don't necessarily think it's my place to carry around anything like that you know i feel like that's kind of vet vet and owner territory but i will recommend that if if i have a laminated horse that's in a lot of pain that maybe the owner go get some butte from their vet you know and medicate them be, you know 45 minutes before their trim uh it's easier on me it's easier on the horse everybody has a good safe experience and then you know i call that part a right those are the ones that are much more noticeable noticeable types of pain and lameness. And then there's part B, which usually doesn't fall within the realm of the hoof care provider's knowledge. And that has to do with uh, body issues. I kind of say it's, uh, it has nothing to do with the feet and is pain that is radiating from other areas of the body, including the mind, which is the part that I go over basically with the training that I do. But the other area, if you know if it's radiating from the body, you know, that's chiropractor, osteopath, body worker, <laughs> you know, they can do amazing things. 
uh, one thing that I have noticed a lot. So horses, you know, I feel like if horses are going to have trouble lifting any feet, it's usually the hinds, right? Yeah. <laughs> it seems to be unless there's something very obviously wrong with the front, right? Hind feet are the scariest, right? If you're going to get kicked, it's usually from a hind foot. So a pattern I have noticed with handling horses hind feet is that is if a horse struggles to bring that hind foot out behind them, you know, and I trim with a stand, but I've tried it, like I used to do certain things out of my lap. So I'll try different positions to see if it helps. But most of the horses that have trouble bringing their legs out behind them, it, they're not okay with the stand, not okay having it in your lap. They're usually not okay with you even holding it just in your hand. But if you put that foot down and you try to bring it forward underneath them and they have no issues, they're out somewhere in their hind end. Every single time I've noticed that pattern, they've been out in the back end. So I don't even, I don't even try anymore. If the horse can't bring its leg out behind them, but it can bring that foot back underneath its body very easily with no issues, I will, I will do my best to trim it from the top. They may give you their foot really easily and you're working on it, working on it, and then they just rip it away. You're like, what the heck? Yeah. You know, like you were doing so good. <laughs> and I've noticed that over time to be a sign that they're in pain and that they're they're actually well trained or at the least trying to be obedient and they're holding it up, holding it up, holding it up, and they're like, Oh, I just can't take it anymore. And they rip it away and they have to, you know, stand on it again and, you know, relax a little bit and remove that pain from trying to hold it up before they can try again. And so that's another time where I'll try to just have empathy for the horse and I'm like, Oh, sorry, that must be uncomfortable for you. You know, I'll just give them a few minutes to just stand there and kind of let their muscles relax and let their mind relax. Then I'll try again. And usually they'll hold it up for longer that time just because you've empathized with them. You know, it's not like, a lot of people say, don't let the horse win, you know, <laughs> like, oh, if it's ripping its leg away from you and you're not holding on to it from all that tussle, you're just letting it win. And when it comes to pain, that couldn't be less true, right? The horse is just trying to communicate to us that it's uncomfortable. So that's another thing um, that I try to do. Like if I go, if I approach the horse, I go to pick up the first foot and they don't want to pick it up. And I try a couple times and they don't want to pick it up. I, I don't keep trying. I go, I go to another leg and I try to pick that one up. And sometimes they're just trying to tell me that they're, they would, it would put them in great discomfort to pick up that leg. Like the other day I was trimming a horse where that happened to me. First foot I go to pick up, won't pick up the foot. I'm like, oh, that's weird. I don't remember this from last time. Like, let me just try the other front foot. I run my hand down the leg to pick up the other front foot. I'm like, ooh, this leg's kind of swollen. Hope it hasn't bowed a tendon. And I, I get the foot up, and I go to dig the mud, up, the mud out of the foot with my hoof pick. And the horse flinches as I go into the collateral grooves, and all this blood and pus comes out of this foot. Yeah. <laughs> so the horse had an abscess that I actually popped with my hoof pick. <laughs> Yeah, and it didn't want to pick up the other leg because it didn't want to stand on the swift that was so sore. So if I'd gotten upset with it, you know, or tried to do some training with it, that wouldn't have been fair, you know. 
all it was trying to tell me was, hey, I've got this really sore foot and I don't want to stand on it. Yeah. <laughs> so I think what it all comes down to, like, just kind of be open-minded with our horses, be present with them, and try to view things from their perspective and be empathetic to their situation, whatever that may be. And it will get you a long way. Just having that paradigm shift, you know, not getting so angry and frustrated with them when they're not doing the things that we think they should be doing and the way we think they should be doing it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, this is all so great. And I'm, I'm really thankful that we've been able to have this conversation just even for my own, you know, growth as a, as a hoof care provider and being able to recognize more, you know, training issues versus pain issues and, and. Oh, I'm so glad. (laughs) Always just reminding myself too of empathizing with the horse. And I try to, you know, I really try to do that, um, as much as possible, but, you know, sometimes, you know, we're not perfect. And, (laughs) um, Oh yeah, it's a journey for sure. You know? And like, you know, who was it? Maybe I think it's Maya Angelou that said, you know, when you know better, do better. But until you know better, you can't do better. Right. <laughs> you know, that's not realistic. Well, I think this has been really helpful and honestly opened up a lot of, hopefully opened up a dialogue between hoof care providers and owners so that they can all be safe and get their horses trimmed or worked on in a way that's going to be comfortable for everyone. Um, oh, good. Yeah. I'm so glad. Yeah. I hope if anything, it just, you know, maybe plants a seed in some people's minds, you know? Yeah. Um, and, you know, I tell everybody too, like, don't take any of this information at face value. Like I said, like, I'm some nobody from Northwest Arkansas, you know, that, that just likes to find new ways to get along with horses. Um, so always tell people, like, go out and research, you know, just, just be a seeker of knowledge. You know, you may, they may find something that I'm not aware of, you know, that is better than what I'm already doing. For sure, that dialogue is so important to open up between horse owners and care providers, you know, to keep everybody safe and to help these horses have the best possible feet that they can. So, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Well, thank you again so much for being willing to talk to me about this. I think it's a really important issue. Well, (laughs) thanks again and have a great rest of your night. All right. You too. (laughs) Thanks. Bye. Bye. I always say that I'm slightly more hoof obsessed than the average person, and chances are, if you're listening to a hoof care podcast, you are too, so we should probably be friends. Feel free to find me on Facebook or email me at thehumblehoof at gmail.com.